0: Welcome to Inflection Points, where in each episode we talk about the pivotal moments in the careers of tech leaders that help them navigate a new path to growth. My name is Joe Hine, and in this episode we speak with Barry Bryan, Group CEO at Strat7, a trailblazing firm bridging research with business consultancy by using data. Barry is a pillar in the Marcoms community, having run and sold the Unlimited Group before starting Strat7. You'll love this one because we discuss the truth about running a listed consulting business why he rebranded a plc successfully delisting and selling unlimited and how barry built a new group from scratch using private equity backing from si partners this is inflection point barry brian is group ceo at strat 7 with over three decades spanning roles from cfo to chairman Barry's leadership fingerprints are evident in businesses like Creston PLC and and the Unlimited Group. Now CEO of Strat7, a trailblazing firm bridging research and business consultancy with data, Barry continues his passion for creating world-class businesses. His notable achievements include leading a transformative buy and build strategy at Creston, culminating in its successful sale and delisting from the London Stock Exchange. Prior to this, Barry had senior roles at multinationals like Saatchi and Saatchi and Loewen Partners across Europe and North America. Barry Bryan, welcome to Inflection Points. Thank you, Joe. Good to be here. You've had a long and storied career in marketing and communications. How did you find yourself on this path and what has kept you here?
1: Well, it was back in the late 80s. I was at university and I got two internships, one uh, during the summer at Goldman Sachs. I spent three months there on the life the Future Exchange, which was great fun, and then uh, I had one month at WCRS. You know, I never forget it. In December, during the Christmas party period, and after one month at WCRS, even though Goldman's had offered me a job post graduating, I went for the Ad World. So uh, it is that was a defining time for me. But it was great fun. I've enjoyed it. It's been it's been a good journey.
0: So so the Christmas parties is uh, is definitely being a, a, a bit of an incentive for you
1: it was it was as a sort of young 20 year old in the uh, WRS in, in Covent Garden yeah absolutely changed the course of events
0: Barry I, I know you originally from your time at Creston which is now unlimited prior to Creston you were at Mother Lowe. what made you make the switch and and take the role at Creston
1: i really enjoyed my time at low i'd been there 6 years part of vince public group mm. i think i was getting a possibly a little bit frustrated with the interpublic group not not the people within it but it was a very very large organization very advertising media dominated at at that time and i got headhunted by i believe it was russell reynolds to come and join creston at that time it was tiny and i sort of went from a running sort of couple of billion worth of revenue across europe to something that i think was about 10 million in revenue so it was a big step um but i just I saw the opportunity. I saw the vision to build something. I wanted to build something rather than manage something. So, and I loved the idea of creating a group through buy and build, through acquisition, um, that was focused on becoming an insight led communication group. So it was a very, very different role. I know a lot of people said, Why on earth are you doing that? Um, going from a large organization. But I just, yeah. want, you know, I wanted to build something. I think I was probably a bit more entrepreneurial than I actually thought I was
0: what was the strategy at the time I and mean, you you spent sort of 12 years with them nine of them as cfo the original
1: strategy was very much buy and build almost financial engineering it was you know it as it was on the main list um and i never forget my old boss back at the time don said well we buy this amount of profits the earnings per share goes up at this PE, and the share price goes up it's easy and of course it's never that easy and uh, I look back, and now what we're doing at Strat Seven. You always say you learn a lot more, you know, from mistakes over the years. I think it was an out and out back then for Creston, an out and out buy and build, and it didn't focus enough on the organic or the collaboration. So at the time, it was it was almost like a, uh, you know, very very small WPP, full diversified marcoms. We had PR, we had digital, we had advertising, we had a lot of healthcare. Um, so again, it wasn't focused enough, but it was diversified Marcoms and buy and build and using the stock market for what the stock market is meant to be there for: raising money.
0: Mm. And was that quite an easy process to to raise money then and to finance the acquisitions?
1: It it was because that was the very open stated strategy of Creston. You know, we were there to use our paper, use the share, the Creston shares for the consideration. So we always paid a mixture of cash and shares when we were acquiring companies. Yep. And probably once every two years, we were doing a fundraise. So we were using money from the bank, but also doing fundraise. So the shareholders that came on board, they knew what we were about, raising money. So it was never easy because it had to be the right deal with the right financial metrics to it, to give the right return to shareholders. But it was a lot easier because that's
0: that's what we knew, You know, the shareholders knew that's what we were there for. Did you find that constrain the strategy at all because of the sort of financial parameters you had around it? Or is it helpful actually to embark on the strategy with those, you know, parameters? It's...
1: A mixture of both, actually, because it was very strict in terms of the gearing levels, i.e. the amount of debt that you could have in the organisation. They were very, very strict. So, yeah, banking covenants were about three and a half times debt to EBITDA. Mm. But also shareholders, they were very um, wary if you were doing more than one acquisition a year. And a couple of times we did two acquisitions a year. So it gave you good discipline. I think they probably could and should have pushed much harder on what's the integration strategy, how are you driving the organic strategy. But, you know, running a PLC has a lot of work to it as well. So, you know, we spend a huge amount of time, so almost on not on the agencies and the trading, the clients who are too busy running the PLC
0: as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was going to ask about that. So what is it like managing a listed business? Every now and again, I have a conversation with someone that says they're interested in using... Either LSE or AIM to, to raise capital and go on a buy and build. But how did you find balancing the reporting cycle, share price variations, and and then the, the long term planning for the business?
1: Um, I enjoyed I enjoyed the diversity of it because one moment I'll be having literally I'll be having a meeting with a shareholder or analyst, and we'll be talking about um, the, you know three year growth of the business, the capital structure dividend free cash flow and then the literally half an hour later i'll be back in soho with one of my agencies talking about you know the agency life people problems or client opportunities or how we're evolving our offer how we're innovating our offer so i did like that diversity switching from city investor relations through to back into agency life very quickly yeah but it is tough um and actually, I do think it's quite short-sighted as well because you're very focused on delivering the quarterly and half-year earnings. You know, Now I'm running Strat7 and we've got private equity investment behind. I do find that's a much longer term, right? We are building the business. What do we want to achieve in the next four or five years rather than, Christ, what are my earnings results in the next three months? So it is a very different structure. It is tough. You need to deliver um I remember one year we had about 20% organic growth, and our target was our, our market consensus was a 21% organic growth. And so we missed it by 1%. The share price got hammered. You think, my God, that was an amazing year. <laughs> like, you know, it was good acquisitive growth, it was good organic growth, but still, share price came off 10% as so we missed the number. Yeah. So it, it is about managing to that number come what may.
0: And, and when you have a scenario like that, like you say, the share price dives and you've you know, off of what is 1% change um, to kind of a forecast. How do you react to that? What do you do? Do you do nothing and just trust in the business or do you have to actually respond?
1: You can't respond to something like that. And it's amazing that I, I remember conversations with shareholders and they say, look, you run the business, we run the share price. You know, don't worry about the share price. It will come good in the end. But of course you worry about it. If you're a chief exec or if you're a CFO, that's your currency. That's what's almost telling you whether you're performing well or not. I mean, that's, that's incorrect in many ways, but that is the outward sign of whether you're winning. And, and also because, as I said earlier, we were using Creston shares to pay consideration. You know, we we're paying up to 30% of a company's value in Creston shares and having lock-in in on those shares as well. So we did have quite a big internal shareholding from management, from vendors selling their companies. So, of course, they will be straight on the phone. What the hell's happening? What's going on yep. with the share price? Because they can see their personal wealth going up and down. Mm. And then you'll go for your quarterly earnings, You know, mm. uh, conversations with shareholders, and they'll be like, why? What is going on? Like, well, you, last meeting, you told me not to worry about it. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is, I have to say, it does prey on your mind. You think in the long run it will play itself out, but then something will happen. I'll never forget we were, I mean, it's going back a while, the height of the financial crisis back in, I think it was 2008. We were running around 17 million EBITDA, and our share price dropped so much, our market capitalization was about 15 million. It's just like this makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. So as a small cap, I, you know, the lower end of the LSE, it is tough. The share price can just go up and down the whole time, so it is tough being a listed company.
0: Yeah, and did you find it still possible to raise money, or did did those cycles of the share price actually kind of impact your ability to to gain capital in to make the buy and build happen?
1: Yeah, hundred percent impacted because you do not want to be issuing your your paper, yeah. your shares. When it's at such a low valuation, you know, if you're then trying to do a bigger acquisition like a class one, where you have to go for shareholder uh, agreements, you want to raise some money as well, then suddenly your potentially, your earnings per share is not, not going to be as good as you had hoped it would be because you're having to issue more shares than you should do because the valuation's lower. Absolutely, it impacts the timing. And, you know, finding the right company to join getting the right chemistry and the culture it's not that easy so suddenly to turn around to that management team so oh, can you come back in six months' time or nine months time We're like really are we are you that dependent upon the fluctuations in the stock market yeah, yeah. And then actually do I really want to join a company like this so yeah it is it does have an impact
0: yeah, yeah. okay interesting well perhaps you'll come back to that in a minute um in 2014 you became the CEO of Creston. Um, How did you make the transition and and what was it like taking over from a founder such as Don Elgi?
1: Um, I'd been there pretty well from the beginning. I mean, Don launched the business, um, I think it was in 2002 and I joined in 2004. So I knew all the management teams very, very well. Don was a big character. Um, He was very supportive of me taking over and, and I thank him for that. The board, we had a very, very strong set of uh, you know, non-executive directors. So they were very much, no, we're hiring Russell Reynolds to run a process. So some way I had to go through all of that process and present my vision and my plan for the business, which is only right. Um, and i never forget the advice from some of the non-execs. And actually, Barry, although you think you've been running this business and you know this business, suddenly going into that chief exec role is a big step up. And I had a mentor and it was because then the buck stops with you, you know, from from a client perspective, from a team perspective, from a shareholder perspective. So you know, all roads lead to you, all responsibility leads to you as well. And people treat you. I've I you know I have to say people do treat you differently because suddenly you are the ultimate boss. But I always thought about no, I'm not. I'm just the manager of the team. It's all about the team and how we how we play as a team is super important. So it was a step up it was quite a long process to get there um but i'm thankful for the non-exec board and how they managed the process because they did make they made me work for it and made me feel like i deserved it as well
0: rightfully so you know you said there was some learnings on the way what were some of the key skills you had to develop or the mindset you had to change in terms of becoming the ceo
1: i think as cfo ceo you're so busy fixing problems i, I saw a you know, an article the other day, chief fixing officer. And it is sort of that. You're just always dealing with things. So suddenly you're then looking two, three years out. You have to look much further out. You know, how do we innovate our offer? What are we doing with our clients? How do we grow them? How do we grow? What's our talent strategy? So it is a different shift in mindset. I've always enjoyed that. I always like thinking ahead. I always think about it's like playing chess. You can't think one, two moves ahead. It's got to be fur- further than that. So... I, I enjoyed the transition. I quite liked not having to worry about all the crap that goes across your desk um, and handing that on to someone else. Um, but I, you know, I enjoyed that transition.
0: Yeah. And, that, you know, as you stepped into those shoes and fulfilled that role, did, you know, as you said, the, the non-execs, you had to present, present a plan for the business. How much change did you want to bring in? You know, you, you'd you lived and breathed it um, as it had grown organically to to come in as CEO and, know, did you have big ideas or grand plans or is it just more of the same?
1: No, I knew we needed to change. We had some great people, some great agencies. We had amazing clients, um, but we couldn't continue as we were. We were, I hate to say it, we were a holding company of of lots of agencies. I think we had about 24 different brands all doing different things. And it was just too much. And we weren't driving the, the synergies, the opportunities across our clients and uh, there was a lot of questions from people. When they sell, you know, senior management, when they sell the business and they're in an earnout, they're very happy to be left alone. But as soon as the earnouts yep. finished, they're like, okay, well, what's the point of this group? Why are we here? What are we doing? What's the purpose? And I knew we were absolutely at that sort of that point. We had to have a bit more of a longer term strategy for the group. and so it's very key, very clear to me that I'm very key that we had to bring the, the companies together, had to have that sort of balance between keeping the best of what they do, but then also bringing them much closer together. And that's when we started to work on the unlimited proposition.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the, the big changes you you brought in. Um, so you, you, you created Crescent Unlimited. All of the operating businesses had unlimited as the, the suffix on their names, as you say, to give them that unifying brand. Um I mean, how did you go about working out that brand and how did you actually go about rolling it out? It's quite a major change for, for a listed business.
1: It was a big change. Um, I think there were a couple of things. Everyone within the business didn't really understand or care that we were a PLC. So and most, com- most clients didn't either. So I had to f- almost focus on right, what's right for the clients and the people and the agencies that within the group. And we got to the point, okay, we'll have almost two names, the Creston PLC brand as your yep. investor relations, and right, what's our go-to-market offer? Always thinking about putting clients at the center. And that's when we started to, you know, I remember getting all the managing directors in a room, all the agency heads, like, guys, we gotta, we got to do something different here. And working with Paul Tullo, the founder of TMW, uh and creative directs and he worked a lot with me on that how do we roll this proposition out it's not just a branding exercise of adding unlimited it was also that internal communications and tim bonnet who's actually still within the unlimited group again how what is our go-to-market what does our client offer as unlimited and it worked really well the word unlimited was is great you know we could go yep. to canon and danone like like canon you know, we are now going to service you through the Canon Unlimited team. This is about unlimited opportunities. We've got to bring our PR, our digital, etc., into servicing that. Unlimited was also a great name for our for our people. We had our, our from our graduate training, our apprenticeship trainings, all around wrapped around talent unlimited. So we used it in many many ways. Um, but it was it was probably more important the internal communication side of this than the actual external. Okay. Um, but it was also in two stages. I knew we couldn't, if you look at the old pictures of when we did the first unlimited rollout with 24 unlimited brands, it was, <laughs> that, I remember me sat there and all these <laughs> brands were like, well, who the hell are they? What do they all do? So it was always stage one of a process of yep. how do we rationalize a number of brands uh, down to whether it's health unlimited for the pharma health yep. side or insight unlimited, etc
0: and you know as you said you had which i think you mentioned 22 brands 22 companies in the organization a lot of those are entrepreneurial led or you know founders of those businesses how did you endeavor to change their behavior and not only take the brand unlimited but think unlimited
1: that's where i remember paul tullo really came in i mean i remember doing a road show or town hall as you call them now going through all the agencies you know why we need to do this for our client, for our people, etc. The technology was absolutely growing. Consumer journeys were changing. Um, brands wanted to be put more customer centric. How do they? They're collecting so much data. How do they analyze it? Etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And they all listened to me and nod, and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when, when you, once you got the founders up there, like Paul Tullo, just sat there like, we need to do this or we'll die. We need to innovate. We have to move forward. So. Getting the founders on board was really, really important. And at the end of the day, they realized they had sold them, you know, sold their businesses into Creston. they had done well during the earnouts, but now what's the next stage? What's the next journey for their agency and for their people? And it couldn't be just the status quo. You know, we need to change, the market's changing. So that the internal cons and in getting the founders on board is incre- incredibly important.
0: Yeah. And as you were taking the business forward uh, there was a significant change in november 2016 creston unlimited was delisted and sold to dbay um private equity um house they'd been investor for a while what was the opportunity that they had seen
1: i think a very low valuation um i think uh, (laughs) to be frank right okay Yeah, we were we were growing nicely they saw a big change in the marketing world through technology changing a lot yeah you know, the, the advertising idea, which is still very key, was not the only thing now. It's like, how could you engage more with, with customers and consumers? Uh, technology is driving much more of a sort of data footprint as well for customers. And what do you do with that data? How do you embed it into, into mm-hmm. marketing communications? So they saw a changing market uh, and they saw a group the size of Unlimited could actually probably change and be and prepare itself and help clients and innovate off the market better than being on the market. So I think they saw a changing market, an agency that was ripe and ready and wanted to change, but mm-hmm. being probably held back slightly by being on the market, and actually a very quite a low valuation as well. I think it was like seven and a half times EBITDA valuation, which for a company of our size and clients was a very low valuation. Um, and then also, there was a willingness from the management team as well. We, as I said earlier, our share price and market capitalization just going up and down with the fluctuations yeah. of the market. It was incredibly difficult. And I still believe you need to be probably four five hundred million valuation to be to make it worthwhile being on the stock market. And we were smaller than that. So we were too small for the market. We weren't we were doing fewer acquisitions. We didn't have Debt. we had good strong cash flow so there are a lot of good financial metrics that they liked
0: what was it they were hoping to unlock other than you know sort of some of the financial engineering or do you think it was primarily because of the financial engineering um
1: probably more the latter i mean you've
0: to run a plc we
1: probably had close to three million of central cost just to to be a public company you could get rid of a lot of that um we had an amazing business in New York um, that we probably weren't integrated enough from a client offer with our UK businesses, which they then went on to sell. Uh, and they did very well from that. So I think it was as much that sort of financial engineering unlocking the value that was being tracked as a PLC, as well as right, how do we grow this business, which I believe it has grown over the over the subsequent years.
0: Yeah. And quite an impressive feat. There's, there's quite a few businesses that are listed that haven't managed to make that move off of the market. Um, what stood Unlimited apart, do you think, that allowed it to be able to, to be bought and delisted?
1: it it's a really complex tough process um rothschilds were our advisor warner mandel mm-hmm. i mean they did a fantastic job for the board but yeah there's a lot of competing forces a lot of shareholders weren't particularly happy about it because they saw it was sort of too low mm-hmm. valuation. although we got a very good premium on the on the prevailing share price i still absolutely contend today it was the right thing for the business you know the market wasn't the right place. It wasn't benefiting our clients, our people in any way whatsoever. Um, I think the the business needed to go through more transformation, and that's better to do it off market as well. So I, I still think it's absolutely the right thing to do, but it was a complex process. You know, even the management team, one minute we're on side, then off side. Um, but I think also DBE had been building up their their shareholding. They were close to. Temson or just over 10%, I can't remember quite exactly where they made their final offer. So I think they had played it very well. You had a management team that were absolutely up for it. Shareholders, probably less so, but they, at the end, they still voted, you know, their irre- irrevocables fully in favor of the, of the delisting. So we got there in the end, but it was, yeah, it was a lot of work.
0: How long do you think the process was end to end?
1: Probably over a year. A long time. Yeah. A lot lots of advisors, lawyers, accountants, Rothschild. <laughs> my goodness, my goodness.
0: Lots of conversations.
1: Yeah. But, you know, we, I still think we did a good job for the shareholders. And that was yeah. our, as a board, that was our primary responsibility.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like I say, not it's not a journey that uh, many listed businesses have, have have managed to do.
1: No, a lot of businesses do talk about it and want to do it. And I I still sit on a public company board, FTSE Fo- 250, and I look back at my first reporting accounts, I think it was about 40 pages. And now it's probably 200 pages, 240 pages. I mean, they're huge, complex reports covering from ESG to the finances, et cetera. Yeah, it's, it is difficult. I think more companies probably want to delist, but it's, it's not that easy.
0: Mm, yeah, no, not at all. It's a big decision both going on the market and then coming off of it. But how did it affect your role? Um, becoming, with, with the new incoming management? Obviously, you said management wanted this as a change.
1: The, I think day-to-day, absolutely. You have a different owner, a different investor. They had different expectations and objectives. I mean, I didn't actually stay for very long because I'd been at Creston for 12 years. I always knew deep down 50-50 whether I would stay or not um, post the transaction. And it became pretty you know, clear fairly quickly that it was more about cutting costs, saving money rather than that continued buy and build. You know, there were very clear targets I wanted to transact on, but I knew, you know, with the sale of the New York office, you know, how we cut costs, taking out all the PLC costs. It was going to be a different, a different strategic objective, which is absolutely fine. They bought the business. It's not something I wanted to do. It's not that I didn't believe in it. It's just I didn't want to do that. And also Twelve years, thirteen years in one place. I was, I was ready for a change and a new challenge. Myself,
0: I bet. Um, which happened? Uh, I know two years later. I know you did various things in between, but but it, there was a big change two years later when you formed Strat Seven. Um, you set it up to bridge research data and consultancy. And what really fascinated me was that you weren't a founder of any of the businesses, but you managed to pull them together under one organization using an investor horizon capital put the money in how did you achieve this
1: it was quite a lot of work as well it took about a year to pull it together but um, basically i had known the two founding businesses research bonds and bonnie finch i'd known them for a number of years i'd have actually tried to acquire them into creston so um, oh, because okay. they were incredibly strong bonnie finch incredibly strong in advanced analytics how using technology, and even back then, AI algorithms, NLP, et cetera, to really extract value out of data. And research boards had a really strong propriety technology platform in collecting customer data and consumer data as well. So I thought those two would come together. But because I had known them, I was then a non-exec chair of Bonnie Finch. I was advising research boards because someone was trying to acquire them. But it came very clear to both of them that actually if they uh, joined another group, they would just get completely lost. And I was seeing, you know, so many more companies, organizations coming into the market research world from the big customer data platforms like Qualtrics, Medallia, Ultrix, So, mm-hmm. you know, collecting more data, but clients are like, okay, great. What do I do with this? What's the insight? Mm-hmm. You know, so technology mm-hmm. was not only driving changing consumer behaviors, customer journeys, but through clients going through their digital transformation, there was more and more data being created and collected. And the platforms were collecting it. You've got the the what, the so what, and the what next. You know, the what's happened. They were very good at that. But technology was driving that. Technology was driving that ability to enrich and analyze data as well. So I I, you know, When I was talking to the teams, like, my God, this industry is changing so much. Clients are needing much more help in that, well, so what and what next? How do I put customer insight in a much quicker, smarter, enriched, data-driven way at the heart of business growth strategy? And so that's where we said, right, this is about reinventing customer centricity, pulling together, blending together technology analytics with business strategy. But I said to the team, if we're going to do this, you're already competing. We're already working on Ikea against, you know, against compete against McKinsey. We were pitching up against Cantar, Ipsos. So guys, if we're going to do this, we need to go and raise some money. So I almost acted like a corporate finance in one way. I saw pre-agreed heads with both companies yeah. and actually a third company, which ultimately fell over in due diligence. I set out a whole vision and business plan. And then I went around various private equity firms, VCT firms, brokers that said I should list on the stock market. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that's, that's insane. Been there. I've been there, done that, got the gray hairs. Thank you very much. So, um, so um, yeah, I pulled, I sort of walked around the streets to, to raise, uh, I won't say mm. how much, but tens and tens of millions to be able to yeah. build a new strategic insight customer, customer analytics group. and. Adam and the team at Horizon were great. They, from, you know, within 24 hours of me presenting, uh, they wrote back to me saying, you know, it was like a warm letter. Absolutely, we agree with the valuations. We agreed to support you on a buy and build and on organic growth. And so they stepped up very, very quickly. And and so far, four and a half years in, they've been a very good partner and investor to to grow in Strat7 to where it is now.
0: Yeah, no, they're they're, they're great guys. they a good partner to align yourself with and you you've made a number how many acquisitions have you made now
1: four four okay. since the original two that founded the business so four in four and a half years it's not not crazy not not a sorrel level but it's uh we're building a nice business yeah it's
0: very steady very steady and probably in a way that a lot of people that acquire too quickly then have to digest um we've seen that with a number of a number of buyers so actually you know pace is 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 important to get right one stood out you for me was you acquired insight in 2021 from kin and carter um quite a major acquisition for you how did it differ in terms of a transaction buying it from a corporate as opposed to buying founders
1: it it's a good question because it is very different it's very different in one way it's it becomes much more transactional and executional but at Mm. the heart of it you know, I still look every time I meet a new company, new agency, okay, what's the chemistry and the culture? How will this fit into mm. Strat7? And as soon, you know, I remember walking out of that first meeting with Peter and Elaine uh, and Pranay and just thinking they will be a fantastic fit for us. Mm. And they did exactly the same, apparently, according to them anyway. So actually Strat7 was bringing the technology, the analytics that we need as well for our clients. So... I think once we've gone through that first few meetings of strategic fit is there, chemistry and cultural fit is there, we can help them grow, there'll be really important transformational acquisition for Strat 7, then it did switch very quickly into transactional, uh, right, how do we get this done as quickly Mm. as possible? And We worked very quickly. I think the first meeting was in July and we completed in October. So that was pretty quick for a a PLC, especially for a PLC. But from their side they were a, a willing seller the management team were willing sellers although they weren't shareholders but yeah. they really wanted to join us so in some way it was then right let's just go through the motions they were kin carter team very experienced you know mna from their side we are as well yeah so almost we could keep the management team to one side they could keep running their the business start going through the induction process with the rest of the strike seven team but then we could just get on with the deal on the other side so it's different because usually if it's a if it's a you know owner shareholder, they're juggling. They're juggling their, their business and then doing the deal process. And there's always something you find out. It's like, really? I didn't know you had a subsidiary and <laughs> I don't know, Timbuktu. Why didn't you tell me about that? Oh, sorry, I forgot. Or some yeah, yeah. someone's got a shareholder. I think it was important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, oh yeah, yeah, Joe's still got a uh, shareholder. I don't know where she is, but yeah. let me uh, go and track her down. Like, how do you not know this? <laughs> and mean you know, one of her is the it's yeah yeah, a lot, yeah there's so many stories that i'm sure you you've got more than i have yeah but um without any of that being part of a plc being very clean corporate structure due diligence etc yeah. it was a quite clean simple transaction
0: yeah, yeah. perhaps l- less emotion in, in some ways yes um i think for a lot of founder shareholders they're they're very attached to their businesses in in, in a very good way um you, know, you have to almost be to, to to build them but it does does create different dynamics
1: Exactly. And sometimes things are important for different reasons for the sort of vendor shareholders rather than the PLC. Yeah. They were very yeah. clear, Castle was selling a few businesses. So I think they had a very clear deadline. Um, I think it was their half year, a year results that they wanted to tie this into. So we all had a very clear deadline to work to, which is good as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. fantastic. As you said, you're four and a half years into your investment with Horizon. What is next for Stratem? Keep
1: doing great work for great clients with great people. That has to be sort of the number one mantra. Um, from a corporate perspective, you know, we, we need to grow more. We are yeah. pitching bigger project sizes now, which is great, but we are more and more pitches against the Ipsos, the Cantars, against the consultancies as well. So we still need to be a little bit bigger, especially in the U.S. About 40% of our clients are U.S.-based. And we're doing the work from here. So we need, We're only about 15% of our team are in the U.S. So we definitely need a bit more scale in the U.S. So looking to how we can grow organically and from an M&A perspective in the U.S. Still, we're doing incredibly well in the farmers uh, sort of vertical, but Mm -hmm. I'd like to grow that. Same in financial services, very strong, our top two clients. Amex and MetLife. Um, but again, financial services, i like to grow as well. Mm. So there's a discipline, sorry, sector area was slightly underweight, geographic, slightly underweight in the US, and always on the lookout for interesting, innovative insight technology, insight agencies as well to continue with that, that buy and build uh, strategy. And then finally, we're doing that, as you mentioned earlier, we're doing a big transformation internally, moving on to Uh, one ERP system, job management system, the whole legal hive up, you know, creating one global operating platform. So if our teams in Sydney to San Fran are working on the same project, they can log into the same system and work on that one client with one MSA at Strat 7 level. So I think people underestimate that. As you said, you you go through the acquisitions and you suddenly wake up and oh my God, I got 12 accounting systems, 12 limited companies in each country. And then you start to unravel that. so we're just doing that going through that process
0: at the moment. so important. it's so important. If it makes makes everything work it doesn't it, it prevents things holding you back and, and supports the, the growth of the business so exactly exciting times to come. Thank you so much. It's so great to hear your, your story, Barry. One final question before you go. After looking back, I like to look forward. what is exciting you about the next 12 months?
1: Carrying on what we're doing, it's fun, a great great team. I think we've been doing a lot of investment, a lot of work on Strat7 AI, how we're putting AI into our offer, how we improve productivity. We launched that three years ago and the team are doing incredible work. In June, July alone, we sold 20 AI driven projects into our clients. So that's just gonna continue to grow. So I'm really excited about that. And then we need to keep investing more in our people as well. So um, Elaine from from Insight is helping me. That's a whole people and culture side to the business as well. So something else we need to work on and invest on as well.
0: Brilliant. Barry, thank you ever so much.
1: Thank you very much, Joe.
0: SI Partners is a leading corporate finance boutique for agencies, consultancies and technology providers at the forefront of the digital economy. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Joe Hine, and you've been listening to Inflection Points.